Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Years ago, my wife and I got into a little disagreement. You see, we had just moved into a new home and we were getting settled. We unpacked the boxes, we moved furniture around, we set up our Wi-Fi. And as we were making our way through this seemingly endless to-do list, we got to a task that neither of us had really thought about before. The house needed a lightning rod. We called around to get a quote, and once we found out it could cost more than $1,000, my wife started to think it was too expensive, might not be worth it. She felt like it was too much to pay for something we would probably never need. I, on the other hand, had a very different take on this. All I could imagine is what would happen if our house did get struck by lightning. In that case, the lightning rod wouldn't just pay for itself. It might be among the greatest investments we'd ever made in our lives. That disagreement led to lots of conversations, and ultimately lots of insights, including into a question we now all have to face. When it comes to being prepared in any facet of life, how can we weigh our concerns and priorities in the present without losing sight of the future? I've been thinking about this a lot in the context of the pandemic. Before COVID-19, public health experts had long anticipated another viral threat. The United States and many other countries had even taken measures to prepare for one. And yet, when you look at the total number of coronavirus cases and deaths around the world, it seems very clear we didn't do enough. The truth is, this isn't something we should just be thinking about or looking at in the rearview mirror. We may have entered a pandemic era, meaning many of us, many of you who are listening right now, may experience another pandemic in your lifetime. So what will we do next time that's different? How can we make sure we're as ready as possible for the next viral threat, whether it's a decade from now or a century? Today, we're going to explore what it means to be prepared as a society fighting the next pandemic and also as individuals preparing for challenges big and small in our own lives. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. And this is Chasing Life. As I was thinking about the issue of pandemic preparedness, there was one person I really wanted to talk to, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. We have to go into whatever we do now to try to prepare better with the mindset that we can prevent this from happening again. I think we can. Scott was the FDA commissioner from 2017 to 2019, just before the pandemic. And he was among the earliest to sound the alarm on the coming crisis. Well, this is a full-blown epidemic in China at this point. The question is, is it going to become a pandemic? We're going to need to change our posture right now. I remember as early as January of 2020, Scott was already raising concerns on television. 
He was getting in touch with former colleagues in the White House, and he was trying to get the federal government to take action. I really thought of him as a voice of reason, and he was someone I texted at all hours in the early days as we were trying to make sense of what was happening. Scott just wrote a book analyzing what went wrong in the current pandemic and what steps we need to take to prevent future ones. So I decided to start there by asking him, first of all, can we actually prevent a pandemic? Yeah, I don't think pandemics need to happen. I think emerging viruses will happen, but I don't think they need to turn into pandemics. And in a way, you can argue, well, these are going to be more inevitable because we're encroaching on wildlife and there's going to be more spillover events in nature. But on the flip side of that, we also have better technology here for both detection and prevention. So maybe the pandemics that happened in the past where we were sort of helpless and couldn't do anything to either detect them and contain them early or thwart them with vaccines and therapeutics quickly, now we have the tools to prevent them from spiraling into pandemics. And I think that should be our goal. I think it's achievable. How did your experience as FDA commissioner affect the influence you were able to have on the White House at the time the pandemic began? Look, I had um, developed good relationships with the policy folks in the White House. And so I initially reached out to them back in January. I remember the moment that I did it, expressing concerns about what I was seeing evolve in Wuhan. And a lot of the, the advice I gave them focused on some of the lessons I had learned over the years, not just as FDA commissioner, but also working for three other FDA commissioners and just observing some of the preparations we had made for past crises. And I think the one thing I was very focused on was trying to get a diagnostic deployed. The mission was largely left to CDC, and CDC went back to their historical playbook, which was that with an emerging pathogen, they're the first ones to develop and deploy a test, and they do it in sort of a very sequential, methodical fashion that's very slow. That's okay if you have a slow-moving pathogen, but in the setting of a pandemic, it just couldn't keep up. You know, it's it's interesting when you start reflecting on that time period, you know, the beginning of 2020, even at the end of January, respected science officials, medical officials from the the government were coming out and saying, look, we don't think this is that concerning. We're keeping an eye on it. Flu is a far bigger concern still. And when you look back, as you said, there was a lot of evidence that this could spiral. How do you find that inflection point between saying, all right, you know, we need to make sure people understand how big a problem this could be versus potentially panicking them for what ends up not being a problem. How confident do you have to be to start getting on and saying things that are going to be frightening potentially to the American people? Um, You need to have an orientation that allows you to hit the red button early and not wait until it's apparent to everyone that you're in the throes of a crisis, but try to put in place some of these measures in anticipation that something could become a crisis. And so certainly by the end of January, we should have been doing all these things. We should have been stockpiling the medical equipment that we would need if this did become a global pandemic. We should have been jump-starting the development of therapeutics and vaccines. We should have been trying to scale a massive effort to deploy diagnostic tests. That's what a proper platform of preparation would look like. I think it raises a fundamental point, Scott, which is it's not necessarily the ability to do things. It's the will sometimes to do things. Are we willing to do those things, I guess, is the question. Are we willing to spend the money, devote the resources, and plan, now I'm talking about the future, for something that may or may not happen? Look, we're going to be willing to do it in the near term. I think the the bigger question is, will we stick with it? Because, you know, the next pandemic might not happen next year or next five years or even in the next 10 years. 
But it will happen at some point. And the question is, will the posture that we invested in have atrophied? And that's what happened this time. Back in 2002 and 2003, we had invested a lot of money in a different posture to try to prepare for what we feared back then was going to be a pandemic with H5N1 influenza. We stockpiled things like masks and respirators in anticipation that we would need them. But we found that a lot of the um, preparations we had made were out of date. You know, the, the masks and the respirators that we had stockpiled didn't work when we forward deployed them to try to combat COVID because we just took our eye off this ball and lost our focus on it. Yeah, I mean, I think some of what you're describing is, is human nature playing itself out in a very big policy way, right? Like you say, this is going to be in our memory for a while, this this pandemic, obviously. And, and it's not nearly over yet. But at some point, you know, it'll start to wane. And with it will wane the resources that are dedicated to preventing it. I'm just curious, is there any way to prevent the waning? Like in Hong Kong, a story that stuck out to me, Hong Kong was not a mask-wearing sort of culture prior to SARS. And then SARS happened, and Hong Kong got hit particularly hard. This time around they were much more easily transitioned into mask wearing in Hong Kong because of 2003, because of 16 years earlier. Do you think that that sort of thing would happen here as well? Will the culture be different, do you think, in the United States because of what has happened? Well, I certainly think the culture is going to change, and we're going to look at the risk of respiratory pathogens in the wintertime differently and have to take more precautions against the spread of respiratory diseases because COVID is going to continue to circulate, and it's going to circulate alongside flu, and that's going to mean you know, masks probably going to become more commonplace in certain points in the year. I think businesses are going to look to see how they can de-densify offices in the peak sort of COVID flu months. But I think there's a bigger issue in that we have to look at the risk of the spread of these kinds of diseases and the emergence of new pathogens through a national security lens. And that means building institutions that are durable and not going to have their mission diverted when these crises don't happen. We do that in other contexts of our life. You know, NASA spends a lot of money mapping meteors, and we don't expect the Earth to get hit by a meteor, but we want to have the preparations to be able to detect if one's heading towards uh, Earth. We have to do the same thing here. I mean, if if you look at what COVID did to us, This hurt us more than it hurt a lot of other nations. This was an asymmetric threat to the West and to the United States in particular. And so we're going to have to build infrastructure that is just going to be there in perpetuity that can't let its mission get diverted and will be ready for this if it happens again. You you wrote about this in the book, this idea of thinking about it from a non-traditional national security threat. And yet, when you were at the White House, I think the first time around, 2003, 2004, they were talking about this. George W. Bush tells a story where he read The Great Influenza and called Fran Townsend and basically says, we've got to do something potentially about the risk of a pandemic. This is just a couple years after 9-11. Everyone was focused on domestic terrorism. But he talked about it at that time. And then, as you say, it sort of waned. So it's just, I don't know if there's an answer to this, Scott, but I just like, what makes something sticky? Like, we keep a fire extinguisher in the house. We don't ask questions about that. National defense, I think most people are willing to invest in, you know, keeping the country safe. How do we frame this? Look, I think it's about building institutions that have this as their focus and don't get diverted in the intervening periods when a pandemic doesn't happen. Uh, you know, if, Are you if talking you, about like a branch of the FDA or the CDC or? Probably something new that has an operational capacity. I think a lot of our shortcomings stem from the fact that we really didn't have an agency capable of both operationalizing a national response and doing the kind of real-time data collection and analysis that you need in a crisis. 
a lot of this fell to CDC. CDC doesn't have the ability to mobilize a national scale response. They're not an operational agency. They're not like FEMA or the Department of Defense. They like to take time, do deep analytics, study questions, publish sort of the definitive word. And in the throes of a crisis, you need an agency that is surfacing information constantly in a real-time fashion. You need something more akin to a military organization or a military mindset. And so you're going to need to build that, but you need to do it in a way that it continues to plug away at that core mission in perpetuity, even in the absence of a crisis, and doesn't get diverted in the intervening years. Much like we maintain certain military capacities for contingencies. We don't expect them to happen, but we keep them operational uh, all the time so that when they do emerge, we, we have the ability to respond. After the break, I'm going to talk to Scott about what being prepared for the next pandemic really requires. And I'm not just talking about the government and new institutions. I'm talking about all of us as individuals. Now back to Chasing Life and more of my conversation with former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. When you think about your your own preparedness, just you and your family and how you live your life. Will you live your life differently to make your own family unit and the ones you love more insulated from a future pandemic? I was always uh, nervous about flu in the wintertime, but not quite as nervous as I'm going to be going forward. I think this virus is going to become more of a seasonal virus. I think Delta is probably going to be the last major surge of infection, even if we do get new variants that emerge, new strains that emerge. So this is going to become more of a constant endemic threat, and I think it's going to settle into more of a seasonal pattern as coronaviruses do. They're typically late winter pathogens. So it's going to circulate alongside flu. So yes, I'll be more conscious of what events I go to and what events I hold in sort of peak COVID months. And I think we're going to get better awareness of, you know, is flu spreading around where I live? Is COVID spreading around where I live? How much People now have sort of developed a new lexicon. They've developed a new scientific grounding, if you will, in how to measure this kind of risk. And so I think that's going to get incorporated into our daily assessments. When you think of, you know, your future, you talk about wearing masks during flu season, it kind of makes me sort of wonder, what are we willing to accept as a society with regard to COVID? I mean, you know, we accept up to 60,000 or so deaths in some years from flu. If this isn't going away, if this is endemic, as everyone seems to think it is, what will we use to define success or at least, you know, now a successful cohabitation, if you will, with this virus? What are we willing to accept, do you think? That's a great question. And I don't really have a point estimate on that. I will say that I think that our sensibilities have been changed We've seen that the steps we take to mitigate the spread of COVID seem to be very effective at reducing the risk of flu. But we're going to be in for a whopper of a flu season, if not this year, um, certainly the year after, because we haven't put flu into the population now in at least a year. So flu is going to come back with a vengeance. And I think the combined impact of COVID and flu could be substantial, even if the prevalence isn't very high, even if it's not raging as a pandemic. We have both of those viruses circulating alongside each other, and you could be looking at hundreds of thousands of deaths. I don't think that's sustainable. I don't think that we should tolerate that. I don't think we need to tolerate that, but that's the risk. Just having, you know, been covering this as a journalist, what I find is that the numbers seem to just sort of wash over people. So, like, I tell people 60,000 people could die of flu in a a bad flu year, 
And I don't think people know what to make of that number, right? So is that is that a lot? Is that not that many? That's the size of the town I live in. People look at these sorts of statistics in all sorts of different ways. And I guess part of my worry with COVID is that if it's endemic and it's still out there, as long as it doesn't seem to be overwhelming the hospitals or, you know, tangible in people's minds in some way, they will progressively start to ignore it. And you see that now. Look, we're, we're, we're having well over a thousand deaths a day, and it's not quite the same headline that it was when we were having a thousand deaths a day a year ago. That's a challenge. I mean, that's going to be a cultural challenge and a public health challenge. How do we reorient the public to look at these kinds of risks and outcomes as something that we shouldn't and don't have to tolerate? I think the other impact that's going to be very tangible on people's lives, if people feel that, you know, going to school, isn't safe because there's outbreaks happening in the school or after school activities or traveling isn't safe because there's high prevalence and you're going to need to wear a mask if you don't want to get sick. That kind of pervasive sense of danger, I think, will impact people's psychology in a way that they'll say, I don't want to live like this. We've got to take collective action to try to reduce this pervasive sense of risk. That's the other place where I think that the sort of rubber meets the road for people in a very tangible way. Yeah, I I, I think you're, you're right. And, you know, people are told that they can no longer work or, you know, things are being shut down. They feel that, obviously. But I'm, I'm curious, on a personal note, people who are listening say, I, I want to do the right thing. I want to be prepared. I want to do all that. But that balance between being prepared and being paranoid, how do you find that? How would you advise other people to find it as well? People who are not necessarily scientists, but are obviously all affected by this. Yeah, I think in terms of, you know, preparing for the next pandemic, there probably aren't a lot of things that I would say people should be doing in their daily lives. You shouldn't be stockpiling a whole bunch of masks and gloves and and Tamiflu. Um, We should have public policy infrastructure capable of doing that on behalf of of citizens. But I think in terms of how people think about their lives, you know, you're going to see the next pandemic coming. So we're going to know when we need to step up our precautions. But I think that we're going to need to be more cautious just in perpetuity. I think this should change our approach to how we deal with um, infectious diseases. And if societies changed a little bit on the margins, that's going to be a very big backstop against the next pandemic. Probably more impactful than anything we can do from a policy standpoint or any preparation we can make is if people just are more cautious about hand hygiene, if you see masks used in sort of peak months a little bit more commonly, if people are more conscious about structuring work activities and leisure activities in a way that are less conducive to spread, if we retrofit buildings to give them hospital-grade air filtration systems, that kind of cultural change and infrastructure is going to be the best backstop against the next pandemic. Yeah. You know, it's like the um, the Isaac Asimov novels. They always end with some version of the greatest threat to mankind is mankind. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> that's what it is, right? And, and I, I don't know. I, I've gone from periods of time from being totally engaged to being totally despondent because I, I just like, wait a second. I think that if you explain these things as well as someone like a Scott Gottlieb does, that that should obviate it. You know, maybe maybe I think because we take care of patients, I feel like I can sit with a patient in a room, take as long as it takes, and really get to it, right? I feel like, give me enough time, and I can explain the rationale. And yet it's so hard to do at a, at a country level. You talk about the idea that we may wear masks in the future, and I live in Georgia where, you know, people still aren't wearing masks now, you know, and the numbers are terrible. The hospitals are overwhelmed. So I, there's no question in there because I don't want to, I mean, who, who knows, right? Some of this is just the human behavioral part of it. I think we anticipate that human behavior will react in a positive, protective way. Sometimes it doesn't. 
Well, look, we're still in the throes of this, and a lot of these questions about what we should be doing and how we should be adapting our lives got washed through a very sort of political veneer. People kind of define their their policy views and their political views by what they were and were not willing to do. I think that'll dissipate. I think the sort of intensity of the debate about what we should and shouldn't be doing and the fact that this has become a very political discussion is going to erode over time. People will move on to other ways to define political ideas and not do it around how they respond to a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And there will be certain things that we just kind of accept and become more more institutionalized as a part of routine life to uh, yeah. to reduce risk. Scott, it's it's always a pleasure. You've been the guy that oftentimes when I'm when I'm stymied by something, uh, I'm reading and I can't quite get it or it doesn't quite make sense to me. You, as you know, I've texted you all hours of the day and you've always responded right away with a very cogent, sensible way of, of looking at something. Uh, so I, I really appreciate it as well. Thank you. Congratulations on the book. We'll hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. If you want to learn more about Scott's proposals for improving our pandemic response, you should check out his new book. It's called Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. I'll also take a moment to tell you about a new book that I've just written. It's called World War C, and it comes out October 5th. For the last nearly two years, I've been so head down in this pandemic, reporting on it, talking to scientists all over the world, understanding the virus, how it spreads, the vaccines. I wanted to take all that reporting and create something useful, something that people could use to get an idea of what exactly happened the last two years, but also to better understand what it means for their personal lives. How do you evaluate risk? How do you prepare yourself in terms of boosting your own immunity? What is really within your own control? Some believe as we just talked about, that it is possible to essentially become pandemic-proof. But how exactly you get there is dependent on all of us, everywhere in the world. And that's why I titled the book World War C. Hope you get a chance to read it in early October. Now, as Scott said, a lot of pandemic preparation does fall on the government. We need a stronger, more unified approach to virus detection and surveillance, and that may require a new government agency, as Scott thinks, devoted to disaster response. But I do believe that there's an important role each of us can play on an individual level. In the United States, Americans were so vulnerable to COVID-19 because so many people went into this pandemic sick with chronic conditions, such as heart disease, diabetes, and kidney disease. Poor health made the pandemic harder to fight, and it could be a challenge in the future as well when fighting off new unknown pathogens. So now more than ever, this is an opportunity, a clarion call to take care of your own physical and mental health. Try and get yourself in the best shape possible. And yes, the advice is going to sound familiar, but maybe it's taken on a greater sense of urgency. Focus on eating more real food, whole fruits and vegetables, getting plenty of physical activity, but also plenty of sleep, and reducing your stress and those stress hormones as much as possible. I know these things can sound obvious, maybe even trite, and you've probably heard them a million times before, but these small behavioral changes can have a huge impact, not just on your personal well-being, but on the nation's overall strength. Think about that. 
There is this paradox when it comes to preparation. If you do all the right things and avoid a major crisis, you may feel like all that preparation was an overreaction. But the flip side is this. When you're in the middle of a crisis, you are aware of just how badly you wish you had done more to avoid it. The point is preparation pays off no matter what. At the very least, it gives us all something you really can't put a price tag on. Peace of mind. Before we go, I wanted to take a question from a listener. Hi, Sanjay. This is Sarah calling from New Jersey. I have an 11-year-old who will be taking the vaccine when she turns 12. But I was curious why Moderna is not available for 12 and up yet. Pfizer's been available for 12 and up for a while, and I believe that they're similar. So I wanted to know if you had any information on when Moderna would be available for at least 12 and up. Great question, Sarah, and one of the most common questions we get. Now, I really want to assure you that, based on our reporting, talking to people within these companies, people are working as fast as they can to get these vaccines approved for kids. I think there's no question that everybody has been really galvanized around this issue. But at the same time, it takes time to collect the data from these vaccine trials, then to analyze that data and then wait for the FDA and CDC and their advisors to review all that data and make a decision. But first things first, the data has to come in. And Dr. Fauci said last week he expects Moderna's data to be submitted to the FDA in late October or early November. Both the FDA and CDC have pledged to work as quickly as possible to review those submissions. Now, these dates aren't set in stone. Things could still change. But that is where we stand today. If you get frustrated by the seemingly slow pace, I understand. But remember, it's important to do things fast, but more important to get it right. Chasing Life is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is executive producer. Zoe Saunders is the senior producer. Our podcast is produced by Rachel Cohn, Jordan Gasparre, Audrey Horwitz, Paige Sutherland, and Grace Walker. Our production assistant is Allison Park, our medical writer, Andrea Kane. Tommy Bazarian is our engineer, and special thanks to Ben Tinker and Amanda Seely of CNN Health, as well as Ashley Lusk, Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, and Daniel Cantor from CNN Audio. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.